It's good to be here with you this morning. I've been out of town on vacation for the last couple of weeks. We've had a few great sermons, and I'm so thankful you got to see my wonderful mentor, Dave Worth, if you were with us, and he has just been such a rock in my life, and I always tell everybody about Dave that he is the quintessential pastor, and in any profession, you need that person that has been through life, seen everything, and I've I've been in a small group with him where you'd think that he would come with the heat of saying, yeah, well, you should do this and you should do that. But in fact, whenever I come to complain or figure out a problem, he just says, oh, you have no idea. (laughs) I've seen way worse than that. And it always makes me feel a lot better. I've done way worse than that. And it always makes me feel a lot better. And Simon's just preached some wonderful sermons in this series we're in, in 1 John. I also want to say happy 4th of July to you. And we're so thankful to be here. I don't know what your plans are to celebrate. I know a lot of people in my neighborhood are shooting off fireworks like nobody's business. Um, I always feel like in Lomita, where I live, the police response to that is just put a big sign up that just says, please do not shoot off fireworks, but it doesn't work at all. Um, And so we've been enjoying the festivities for many days, at least with the bangs and everything else. Um, And of course, we, we stuck it to the British so we can all feel good about that, right? Thankful to be here, so much to be thankful for in this country. Um, Even though it can be complicated at times, we're so deeply thankful to be here uh, together in this church, in this place, um, and thankful that we get to celebrate and and do all that good stuff. But first, let us explore uh, this uh, chapter 3 in the book of 1 John. You can follow along on your screens, or you can listen along, or if you brought a Bible— I'm going to read the scripture for us, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time seeing what God might speak to this church in response to this word from 1 John. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, all who have, who have uh, this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he has appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin, has either seen him or knows him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So a lot to unpack here in the scripture this morning. And uh, we've been building on themes as we go. So if you're just jumping in, one of the themes that I want to bring up right here at the beginning as we talk about what 1 John is really trying to bring to us in all of his wisdom as an older man instructing a young church that has just gone through a conflict is that he is inviting us to participate and is inviting this church to participate in the eternal now, in the Azoe life. And when we think of eternal life, our concept a lot of times is to think about what happens when we die. And that's a popular conception of this idea of Zoe, but in reality, what eternal life is, what John has in mind with eternal life, is this life that has been going on from the beginning, is present here and now, available for us to see in glimpses and is where everything is headed into the future. This Zoe life spans all of time and space. It was there in the beginning, it is here now. And so we know one of the biggest themes that John draws out for the believer is this idea that what we should be about is abiding in this eternal life. How do we learn how to connect to the vine of Jesus Christ as he models for us when he was on earth how he connected to the Father and lived the fullness of life. And so the way we want to think about what is being articulated here in verse 1 about the lavish love of God is to come to learn from our elder John who's teaching us something that is so real to him, something that he has tasted and seen and known for himself. And that doesn't mean that he hasn't had a lot of difficulties and a lot of misplaced ambition and said some really outrageous things to Jesus himself, only to learn that he would do exactly what Jesus thought he would do and what he desired in his heart, which was to sit with him, to be with him. But remember what Jesus says to him, the son of thunder, he says, can you drink this cup? that I'm going to drink, and he says, yes, I can, and he says, you have no idea what you are saying. 
And yet now we see John as an older man teaching a church this very same lesson. This very same lesson that we can be a part of the kingdom of God. But all of the rights and privileges of being called a child of God also come with responsibility. But before we get to the responsibility, let's talk about what this did, what this does for us and what it did for John. So if we have, do we have a picture? Uh, I want to see if you know your fifth grade science. Do we have any pictures? No pictures? Okay, I'll, I'll email Heather. No, God bless her. That's all right. Let me tell you about the Copernican Revolution. Anybody know about this? Fifth grade science. Okay, so as people were trying to figure out how the world worked and everything within the world worked, there was a second century Egyptian named Ptolemy, and he came up with a theory about how the world worked. This is a theory that I think we would all come up with if we were going to be a good pop scientist, right? As we observe the world, we see the sun rise and the sun set, and we assume what? That everything revolves around the earth, right? Around us. Isn't that our habit is to think that everything revolves around us. And as many times as I can read the scripture to you about the lavish love of God, isn't it still hard to wake up every morning and not think in some way that the world revolves around you and what you want and what you need? And then, of course, in the 16th century, Copernicus said, well, you know what, there were some theories back when they were still trying to figure this out, and I know it's been around 18 centuries since we came up with this theory, but in fact, this is not the appropriate theory. Sorry, all you flat earth people out there. But this was what created modern science and a scientific revolution was this idea that no, in fact, sorry. The earth uh, is revolving around the sun. But what's weird is that when we talk about it, we still talk about it as if it was rising for us and setting for us instead of really understanding that, in fact, no, we're going around the sun. Because it's really hard for us to imagine right now that we're spinning and that all of the stars are spinning around the sun. And of course, you know I'm a pastor, so I can use the cheap pun that we are all spinning around Jesus. And John is trying to teach us how to see in this way. This paradigm shift. Everything changes and nothing changes with this paradigm shift. Meaning you'll wake up in the same world that you were in before, before you knew this truth, but the way you see it will change. The way that you understand it will change. 
its potential and possibilities will become bigger and more massive for you and for the world than you ever imagined possible, right? For those early explorers, this meant that they could go around the whole earth and they wouldn't fall off at some point. Same for us. You see, what I get out of this text is that John sees a brighter future for me than I see for myself. Do you get that out of this text? That Jesus came into the world and the world did not see or recognize him. But John did. And so did the 12. Or 11, however you want to put that. They saw it. And for them, it was a paradox-shifting moment, a paradigm-shifting moment, excuse me. They saw the world differently. And now John comes to the church, and he says, you are seeing it. You are connected to the vine. And you have no idea what has been made known to you in glimpses and hints will one day be made fully known to you. And we might ask the question, how is this possible? And what will we see? One of the essential truths here about how we begin to see this way is simply by learning from Scripture how to behold who God is. This is a theological term called theosis, beholding. Just merely turning our gaze toward God, away from ourselves, away from the needs of the day, away from our stresses and anxieties, and just simply doing our best to try and behold who God is, who he's saying he is to us, who God is in the people around us. And there's a way in which we can learn from Moses here in such a profound way. Remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he spent time with God and he saw the fullness of who God is in a way we could only hope or imagine to see. And you remember when he came down the mountain, he was shining. Because by beholding God, he became like God. By looking onto God, he became, he took on his character and likeness, and there was something revealed with him that he didn't even know was possible, and it came only by looking and observing and being around. The writer Thomas Merton says it beautifully, that this isn't just something that we learn about who God is, but there's a way in which as children of God, we learn who we truly are. He says, there is only one problem on which all of my existence, my peace, my happiness depend, to discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. You know, one of the mistakes it's really tempting to make in parenting 
is to assume that your child is tabula rasa, meaning blank slate. That my job as a parent is to look down on this little infant and to dream dreams for it and to think of the ways my will as a father can be imposed on this little creation so that I can make this little creation as strong and powerful and smart, better than the other kids by comparison, uh, fulfilling all of my hopes and dreams for them to be a professional baseball player and a professional surfer and all of the things that I hope for them to do. But then every parent in the room or every person in the room truly knows that this whole project don't work out at all, because that little being begins to tell you who they are. And I wonder how much my pain as a parent comes from still trying to put my will on my child. Instead of trying to watch my children bloom and reveal themselves and to try and create an environment where I can cultivate this bloom. And I don't demand of them that they bloom in a certain season or a certain way so much as I marvel at the fact that they bloom. And they reveal themselves to me, and I say, wow, look what God has done. Look how God has made this little one. Not the way I might have planned or expected, but so much brighter and brilliant and unique than I would have ever done it. Now, does that mean that they never make a mistake? Oh, no. Plenty to help them with in this process. But what a joy it is to know that somehow we discover ourselves in this process of looking at each other and observing each other and learning each other and so much more healthy when we know exactly how this process works, that it's not just on my shoulders alone, but on a good day, I can say, God, this is for you. Me and my family and my church, we revolve around you. And so you shine on us. You shine on us. I want to see your light in my life. I want to see your grace in my life. I want you to uncover and teach and show. In fact, I take this at least serious enough to name one of my children after what we're going for here, which is glory. My two-year-old little glory rose. Because I learned in the first one that this is all about just learning how to live in the glory of God and appreciate it for what it is. When Moses came down, he was shining with the glory of God, the kavod of God. Do you believe that it's possible what First John is saying here is that that is where you are headed as well? That you were made to shine with the light of the sun. 2 Corinthians says, now the Spirit, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we will all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That means we're a chip off the old block. We carry our father's resemblance. You know, I have this wonderful picture of my son the first time I tried to give him a haircut. It's so embarrassing for everyone. What a mistake to try and give your child a haircut when they don't want it. And he looks at it and he thinks, Dad, you are a mess. You are a hot mess for trying to do this to me. But I look at it and I see this moment with my son. He has my resemblance. He carries my name. I'm proud of that picture. Not only that, but I think as Christians, we need to have hope and rely on this truth that John is saying here that we will one day see this in all of its fullness. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. In John it says there's a seed planted in you in this text. There's a seed in you that God put in you. And he doesn't give up. He doesn't stop working. He doesn't stop cultivating you. And then it talks about when we will see him when he appears again. And the word here in Greek is parousia. And I wonder if when we read these texts, if you're like me, I get a little like, okay, we're talking about the second coming. What does this mean? How do we unpack it? So many theories, so many thoughts over theology. And, and, and I mean, man, I can conjure back to my Bible classes in high school, post-trib, pre-trib, it's all this complicated conversation that comes down to something that I want to instill in you more than anything else, which is that this parousia is something that communicates a Christian's hope. So if you hear the second coming and you feel terrified and you are a Christian, we're missing something. missing this great promise that there is a coming king who will come in all of his glory and that what the world missed the first time the world will not miss the second time and so in all of the splendor and might of Jesus Christ we place our hope and hope is a funny thing, because if we say we have no hope and we try and live our lives, it becomes really tricky, right? What's the point? If we have no hope in something better in the future, why do we work now? If we're not optimistic that God is going to do something in our lives and, and work to grow in us and form us and shape us into who we're becoming, then why do we get up in the morning? I ask this question sincerely. 
What is it that we have to look forward to? What is it that we are doing here on earth if it isn't for this way in which we look forward to the great glory of God in Jesus Christ? I love how Rebecca Solnit describes hope in her book, Hope in the Dark. She says this, Hope is not a lottery ticket you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. It is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency. Hope should shove you out of the door because it will take everything you have to steer the future away from endless war, from the annihilation of the earth's treasures, and from grounding down the poor and marginal. To hope is to give yourself to the future And that commitment to the future is what makes the present inhabitable. This picture of hope. How many of us think of it like a lottery ticket? I don't have to do anything with it, but just hold this ticket and punch it one day if my number comes up. That doesn't work out too well for lottery winners, right? As they win the lottery and then we watch their life descend into tragedy. But instead, hope is what we relied on for the last year. We go and we break the glass and we take out our axe and we say, no matter what is coming, I have hope in the future. I know my king. And I know everything revolves around him. And even though it gets really dark, sometimes there is a light. And I can see it in hopes and glimmers. And so John takes all of this brilliant promise and he says, would you not forsake this calling, these rights and privileges as children of God? Because he's lived long enough to see how this can go horribly wrong. He says the world cannot see it, but there are also those who are within his community that stood with a false authority without any humility or love and presenting as if they had the truth, manipulated those within the community to follow them and to fracture the church, which was to him the greatest heartbreak, the one who taught us all about unity and connectedness and how God brings the church together in love and forgiveness. And he is probably reopening an old wound that that Judas once opened. That it is in fact those within the community that can do the most harm to the community. And so he says, this is how you will know. Do they care about the things of God? To follow and surrender their authority to the king's authority. To say, hey, I am not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe, 
and his law is the law of the land. No need to spruce it up or make it fancy. No new unique teaching or spin on things. No. To put God on your lips and in your heart and in your life with sincerity and humility and then to observe, is there love? Is there love? These are the things that were lacking from the teachers who infiltrated the church. And we can, say, we can use the same litmus test here and now, in us and for the church. One of the joys of the last season with my kindergartner, Remy, who's six, has been to see the ways in which he responds to our fathering and our mothering. And of course, there are so many things that he does that we're like, okay, Remy, let's reel it in. You see him on the patio. But he has this sweetness and so every so often in the morning time, he'll get up before us, go into the kitchen, and he gets a plate, and then he'll get like two granola bars, because he's learned how to climb up into the pantry, put them on a plate, and then bring us two of his juice boxes. <laughs> and before we get up in the morning, we have breakfast in bed. Now, do I want to drink that juice box or eat that granola bar right when I woke up in the morning? Absolutely not. But am I so uh, just overwhelmed that my son could give back to acknowledge the love, the care, the service, and in his way, show up for us. I think that this is what John is saying. It's not so much the couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't when we're talking about sin so much as it is how are you compelled by the lavish love of God to respond? Because if you behold God, if you're connected to the vine, then what you desire is this eternal life. To give back in these simple and humble ways. And so, of course, we do everything we can to plead for God's forgiveness for our sin so that we might again be connected to this great love. Will you take a moment now and in silence as we lead towards communion, would you spend a little bit of time with your maker God and perhaps you just want to receive the lavish love of God this morning that is promised in this text. Maybe you want to open your hands. Maybe you want to quiet your heart. And would you just spend a little bit of time beholding the God who made it all and loves you and think about nothing else.
So take a moment by yourself right now to think on such things. Lord Jesus, you are so good, so full of grace and generosity and love. And where the light touches the darkness, we become more aware of just how much we need you. And so I pray that you would make this a time where we come into communion with you again. We remember you, Lord Jesus, and all that you have done for us. And we are filled with gratitude. We're filled with honor and privilege at being your son and your daughter. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.